Welcome to this week's Title Now pop-up webinar. I'm Melissa Murphy, General Counsel at the Fund, and I have the pleasure of hosting these weekly pop-up webinars. For those of you who might be new to this, uh, we offer them pretty much every week. They are on Thursdays, noon, 30 minutes. I'm pretty strict about that. And they are free. And we just try to touch on a variety of topics that would be of interest to real estate practitioners, fund members, their staffs, uh, anyone interested in the real estate and settlement services industry. We also push the audio content out on our podcast, which is also called Title Now, so that's easy to remember. And you can subscribe to that podcast anywhere that you subscribe to other podcasts. So sign up and uh, then you can get the audio content if you miss a weekly webinar. So thanks. Many of our past webinars have focused on an issue related to the pandemic that we are all currently experiencing remote online notarization, altered office practices, uh, eviction and foreclosure moratoriums, which by the way, was extended today until September 1st, the economy. Um, but today we're going to learn about an issue facing many businesses that, aren't, that is not related to the pandemic. So we're all aware of the American with Disabilities Act, and some of us are certainly more aware uh, than others just based on your circumstances. But have you ever thought about whether the ADA applies to websites, to your website? We have the perfect guest with us today to talk about that. So I wanna introduce Adam Schottner. He's a shareholder with Shapiro, Blassie, Wasserman and Herman in Boca Raton. He's been practicing law for 22 years. Adam is board certified by the Florida Bar in labor and employment law. But throughout his practice, he has also had extensive experience defending public access discrimination claims under the Americans with Disabilities Act and various types of Fair Housing Act claims. He has counseled countless clients on accessibility matters, including physical barrier issues and website accessibility concerns. So welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Melissa, uh, and welcome to everybody. Uh, I'm gonna jump right into it. Um, as she said, today I'm gonna speak with you about public access disability discrimination claims. Uh, for more than 25 years, an extensive, substantial amount of such claims have been filed against private businesses and property owners under the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. Um, recently, there's been a new trend that has been developed where real estate agents and brokers are getting hit with claims that their websites uh, are advertisements under the Fair Housing Act and are not accessible to visually impaired individuals. Um, so let's start at the beginning, which is the ADA. Uh, the ADA has three parts to it. 
Uh, part one deals with employment. Part two deals with state and local governments. We are dealing with part three, Title III. Um, Title III became effective in 1993. Uh, beginning around the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, uh, a wave of ADA lawsuits began to be filed. And Florida has consistently been one of the top states for ADA lawsuits in the entire country. Now, uh, when it comes to physical structures uh, and surrounding architectural issues, there are literally hundreds of regulations that specify how these properties and facilities uh, are to be compliant. Um, it covers everything from how wide a parking space needs to be, uh, to the slope of the parking lots and ramps, to table heights, to door widths, uh, to even the height of the toilets and the type of faucet handles in the bathroom. Uh, the level of detail is actually staggering, um, but it generally makes it easy to determine whether something is compliant or not. You take out a tape measure or a level, and it's either compliant or it's not. Uh, since the effective date in 1993, all new construction has had to comply 100% with the regulations. Um, existing structures at the time also need to comply. There was no such thing as being grandfathered in where you just don't have to comply at all. Um, existing structures have a different standard, though. They have to comply, but they only have to comply to the extent it is readily achievable. Now, what is readily achievable? Uh, it's sort of like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Um, but ultimately, if a property or a business is not 100% compliant, then there is potential exposure and a risk of being sued. Um, and if you cannot achieve 100% compliance uh, for whatever reason, then the goal is to be as unattractive a target as possible. What do you mean by an unattractive? attractive target? Uh, the example I always give is this. Um, let's say you have a, a restaurant. Um, it's a freestanding structure um, and it has a restroom, of course. Let's say that everything inside that facility, everything from the parking lot to the interior, everything is 100% compliant except the size of the restroom. Okay, even within the restroom, the fixtures are correct, the toilet is the right height, the grab bars are in the right place, but ultimately there's, it's just such an older property that the only way to get sufficient clear floor space within the restroom is to start knocking down walls. Uh, you need to enlarge the restroom. So you have a situation like that. But again, everything else is compliant. Um, in my experience, that is not a property that is likely to be sued uh, because it's simply an unattractive target to a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, why? Because in that situation, the defendant, number one, uh, probably has a good argument that it is not readily achievable. Uh, and number two, as, as part of that, you may very well be backing the defendant into the corner where it might be better for the defendant to actually fight the case and establish that it's not readily achievable. Um, and this is a good example of what readily achievable means. It's not just the cost of doing the work. Um, say again, in the restaurant example, well, if you're going to enlarge the restroom, you're gonna make something else smaller. 
And let's say as a result of enlarging the restroom, you actually lose one or two tables for customers to sit at. All right, well now there's a, a different part of the analysis which gets into ongoing damage, ongoing loss of revenue. So that's what I mean when I say an unattractive target. Okay. So um, until several years ago, uh, pretty much all of the ADA lawsuits were these kind of physical or architectural barrier cases. Then uh, the attorneys who file these cases decided to try something new. Uh, they started suing businesses by claiming that the business's website is inaccessible to visually impaired individuals. Now, blind and visually impaired individuals can access and use websites and the internet using what's called screen reader software. But for the software to be effective, the website itself simply needs to be programmed in a certain way. And the essence of the claims was that the, the websites were not programmed in the right way. Now, these website cases uh, are especially challenging. The main reason is that, uh, unlike with physical structures, there are no regulations that specify what it means for a website to be compliant. We just don't know specifically what it means. Uh, a secondary challenge is that the law is currently unsettled as to the extent to which a business's website can even be challenged under the ADA. Um, in the 11th Circuit, as it stands right now, there needs to be a nexus or a connection to a physical location that a person may seek to access or learn more about, um, such that the website is treated as an extension of that physical space. So have any website cases been brought to trial and, and been ruled upon? No, that's a good question. Um, to date, in the entire United States, there has only been one ADA website case which has gone all the way to trial. Not coincidentally, that was in Florida, uh, in fact, in South Florida. Uh, and that case was brought against Winn-Dixie, the supermarket chain. Uh, and Winn-Dixie lost. Now, before going on to talk about that case, th this is a good point to discuss what I call or what people call WCAG, W-C-A-G. W-C-A-G stands for the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Uh, WCAG comes from an organization called the Web Accessibility Initiative, which in turn is part of the World Wide Web Consortium. Uh, the consortium is an international community that helps set standards for the web so that the web is more uniform and runs better. Um, for a few years, uh, the standard, quote unquote, for website accessibility under WCAG has been what we call WCAG 2.0. Now, that version of the guidelines has 38 of what are called success criteria which are things that, at least ostensibly, can be measured in some way to determine accessibility. Now, recently, uh, they came out with WCAG 2.1, which adds 12 new success criteria for a total of 50. 
What are some examples of this success criteria? Because I'm trying to envision what it is about a website that is critical. Sure. Here's just a handful of things that are uh, identified as success criteria. Um, is there are there transcripts available for video only uh, and audio only content? Uh, is there closed captioning for videos with sound? Um, you cannot rely on color alone to display or convey information. Um, you have to be able to pause, stop, or mute any audio conveyed on the website. Um, all content and functions on the website must be accessible by keyboard only without using a mouse. Um, users have to be able to navigate through a website in a logical sequential order that preserves meaning. Now, that's a little vague, but that is one of the criteria. You would um, think you would need that on all websites. <laughs> yeah, you'd think so. Um, form errors need to be easy to identify, understand, and correct. Um, one of the newer, one of the new success criteria is to make sure that text spacing is able to be adjusted without causing a poor experience using the website. So those are just some examples of the success criteria. Now, uh, I've handled many of these ADA website cases, um, and in every one that I've settled, uh, ultimately we have settled by using the WCAG 2.0 or 2.1 standard. Again, there are no regulations, uh, but WCAG is pretty much the closest thing we have right now to some sort of objective criteria. So those WCAG guidelines have been used to settle a case, but no court has ruled that those are the applicable standards. No, actually, that's what happened in the Winn-Dixie case. Oh, okay. okay. In the Winn-Dixie case, Winn-Dixie lost, and the judge imposed WCAG 2.0 as the standard. Now, Winn-Dixie appealed that decision. Um, now, oral argument in that appeal before the 11th Circuit was held almost two years ago, October of 2018, and we still do not have a ruling. Um, now, in my experience, that's kind of a long time for an appellate court, a federal appellate court, to, uh, to not rule. Uh, we're not really sure what they're waiting for uh, at this point, um, but those of us who practice uh, in this area are very anxiously awaiting uh, for some kind of guidance. Yeah. So with all that in mind, I'd like to just briefly talk about what I mentioned was sort of the latest craze, um, which is that uh, a lot of real estate agents, um, brokers, and realtors are receiving these demand letters and draft complaints. Um, now, so far, based on what I've seen, these demand letters and draft complaints are being asserted under the Fair Housing Act. Um, as I'm sure you know, the uh, Fair Housing Act uh, anti-discrimination provisions apply to any advertisements. Um, unfortunately, it's probably difficult to argue that a website uh, on which available housing can be viewed is not an advertisement. And, and I think that's the essence of what these demand letters are claiming. Now, a question is why are they traveling under the Fair Housing Act and not the ADA? Uh, I believe there's two reasons. First, the ADA only applies to, quote, places of public accommodation, close quote. Um, that generally means places like 
restaurants, stores, shopping centers, malls, movie theaters, gas stations, office buildings, and similar private businesses with a physical location that is open to the public. Um, I think it's at least arguable that real estate agents and brokers, uh, maybe some of them do not represent places of public accommodation, particularly if they maybe work out of their home. Um, so rather than even fight that battle, uh, these lawyers sending these letters are going right to the Fair Housing Act. Uh, the second reason why I think they're traveling under the Fair Housing Act is that the ADA does not allow for damages. Uh, a plaintiff suing under Title III of the ADA is not entitled to damages or monetary relief. Uh, they're only entitled to injunctive relief, basically an order requiring the defendant to fix the property. But of course, that also entitles the plaintiff to have his attorney's hourly fees paid. Um, and, and because it's an only injunctive relief, there are no jury trials under the ADA. Uh, but with the Fair Housing Act, Damages are recoverable and jury trials are allowed. So how are these cases against the real estate agents and the real estate brokers, how are they being defended? Can they be defended? Well, that's a that's a good question. And I think it's the, the answer is I'm going to answer it in a more broad sort of way, which really applies to any of these sort of public access type disability claims. Um, you know, in theory, they certainly can be successfully defended, um, but it is often cost prohibitive to take that approach. Um, under these laws, a prevailing plaintiff will recover the attorney's hourly fees and costs. However, except in extremely rare situations, uh, a prevailing defendant gets nothing and a prevailing defendant should not expect to recover their fees and costs. Um, so most of these cases do settle, if for nothing else, than a business decision um, in terms of overall uh, cost and expense. Um, plus, in my experience, uh, it is unusual for there to be insurance coverage that defends these claims. I have seen it, but it's definitely on the unusual side. Um, now, for many years, um, a typical defense in an ADA case, at least, would attack the plaintiff's standing, essentially arguing that the plaintiff was not a genuine customer, but instead was you know, a serial filer of lawsuits. Um, unfortunately, for those of us who defend these claims and the, and the businesses that get hit, back in 2013, the 11th Circuit held that ADA plaintiffs can have standing as testers which basically took a bad situation and, and made it worse um, and, and actually made it easier for these cases to be filed. Um, nowadays, they, the most effective way to defend a claim is for a defendant uh, to fix everything that needs to be fixed and to do it ASAP. Under the ADA, if a defendant fixes everything that's wrong, then the defendant can seek a dismissal based on mootness. Um, since only injunctive relief is available, if everything is fixed, then there's no relief to grant. Um, and significantly, if a case is dismissed due to mootness, then the plaintiff is not entitled to attorney's fees, even if the defendant only fixed everything because a lawsuit was filed. Now, um, in, in any of these matters, okay, there's always two goals, okay, at least 
from my standpoint, uh, representing a client, first, you want to address and resolve the pending claim. But second, you want to take steps to prevent future claims, because if issues remain, there's definitely exposure for, for uh, a subsequent lawsuit. Now, for several reasons, you know, certainly it'll typically take a client of mine some time to come into compliance once a matter settles. Now, if it's a private settlement um, and the property or website remains non-compliant pending any modifications, then there is a risk of another claim being asserted. And the fact that you've reached a private settlement with another plaintiff, but yet, but haven't yet finished the work, um, is not a defense. Is not a defense. Having said that, uh, if an actual lawsuit has been filed, um, as opposed to a pre-suit settlement, then you can choose to settle the matter via a consent decree, um, which basically serves as an order of the court. And so, if during the compliance period and I've seen it anywhere from six months to three years or more. Um, but if during that period another claim is asserted, then you would have an excellent argument that the new lawsuit is moot and should be dismissed because the defendant is already under a court order, meaning this consent decree, um, and that order provides remaining time to comply. Um, ultimately, the sad truth is that when it comes to these public access claims, there really is no sort of get out of jail free card. Um, there's no, I say there's no VIP lounge or champagne room, you know, um, they need to be addressed and ultimately it's going to cost money plain and simple. Um, now I, I will say this, um, one of the issues with website issues is that taking the approach of quote unquote fixing everything um, right away is challenging. Why? Because there are no regulations. And so it can be very difficult to convince a court that your website now complies uh, with the ADA or the Fair Housing Act when we really don't know what it means to comply in the first place. Um, so that can be really challenging. Um, when, I, when I speak about these public access claims, I always like to tell the Clint Eastwood story. Um, and I tell it to clients as well. Um, and the Clint Eastwood story doesn't necessarily make my client feel any better once they've been sued, uh, but I do tell it to demonstrate um, that that businesses and individuals who get hit with these claims, they shouldn't necessarily feel powerless because they're the little guy. Um, the truth is sometimes you can't fight City Hall uh, no matter who you are. Um, for many years, one of the primary gripes about these public access claims is that the law does not require pre-suit notice. It simply doesn't. You can just go right into filing a lawsuit. Um, there have been attempts to change the law, uh, including a couple of years. The House of Representatives passed a bill, um, but it went nowhere in the Senate. Um, and I will tell you, having followed this issue for many years, this is not some kind of political hot potato issue. Um, that scenario I just described has played out many times over the past 20 years with different parties in the two houses and in the White House. It just doesn't matter who is in charge. It just hasn't happened. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen. Um, so about 15 to 20 years ago, uh, Clint Eastwood got sued um, regarding a restaurant that he owns in uh, Carmel, California, where many years ago he was the mayor. Um, now, like many people, um, he couldn't believe 
that the law didn't require pre-suit notice. Um, but unlike most people, um, and because he's Clint Eastwood, uh, he was able to go to Washington, D.C., and he spoke before a congressional committee and implored them to change the law for all the reasons you might expect. Um, but as you've already heard, nothing happened. Law hasn't been changed. Wow. So the Clint Eastwood story, the moral of the Clint Eastwood story is that if Dirty Harry couldn't get something done, really what chance do the rest of us have? Again, doesn't necessarily make, feel, make people feel better, but it might make them feel a little less powerless, that ultimately you're just up against something uh, that it's very difficult to fight. Um, so for now, like I said, we await further guidance from the courts, particularly on these website issues. Um, but ultimately, if someone does get hit with an ADA claim or, or a demand letter uh, under the Fair Housing Act, really they need to try and look to achieve the same two goals I mentioned earlier. You want to address and obviously resolve the immediate claim, but it is important to take steps to try and prevent future claims. Thank you. So, Adam, a couple of questions. Sure. Um, with regard to the website situation, are there companies out there that are sort of in the business or um, are in the business of helping companies fix their websites? Is that a burgeoning industry out there? Is that a well-established industry? I'm not sure I would describe it as um, well-established, um, but it is an industry. Now, I will say this. Um, nowadays, there's uh, you can there, there's things that you can buy that I've seen that sold called widgets um, that are ostensibly these autonomous programs um, and and sort of apps that you can install on a computer system that are intended to, you know, address these kinds of website issues. Um, however, um, in my experience, what I have found is that they're better than nothing, um, but um, in many cases, I believe that the, the level of compliance that they help you achieve is still significantly lacking and does leave you exposed. Um, if a company came to me and said, you know, money is no object, we want to be as compliant as possible, we want to comply with WCAG 2.1 to the maximum extent, how do we do that? Then I would advise them to engage a company that does specialize in website accessibility compliance. And there are companies like that. There are companies that I've referred clients to. Um, and what these companies do is it's not merely a matter of programming. Um, to, to achieve true compliance, you want to do um, human auditing. Um, what, the, what the widgets purport to do is sort of autonomous auditing, but it, it, it just isn't as effective. And so these companies make the programming changes to the website, but then they literally do human spot checking, you know, and, and they actually check the effectiveness of the changes. They go through the success criteria and they see hands-on, is this stuff, you know, now 
um, compliant the way that WCAG intends. So you need to make sure that whatever company or product that you buy knows what those guidelines are and agrees to bring you in compliance with whatever the most current version of those guidelines would be on the pretty reasonable assumption that that's going to be the measure or the standard against which you're going to be measured. That That's true. Um, and I will say, I mean, look, it, it, you know, like, like with a lot of things, you do get what you pay for. The widgets are generally an economical option because um, it's, like I said, it's sort of autonomous. Um, but to give you an example, um, when the Winn-Dixie trial took place, uh, the testimony at that trial was that for Winn-Dixie, uh, to get its website to comply with WCAG 2.0, that the cost involved in that was a six-figure number. Um, and so, now, granted, uh, when Dixie's website has hundreds, maybe thousands of pages to it, because uh, presumably, you know, if you click on a product, you know, it might have its own page. So it's an extensive website, and and generally speaking, the cost. Of, of modifying a website is largely tied to how many pages are, the, you know, are, 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 does the site consist of. Um, but it's not necessarily an inexpensive proposition to have a company do it with human auditing. But again, if you're really looking to protect yourself and you're looking to maximize um, or minimize your exposure and risk, then that's the way to go. Well, Adam, we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. And clearly, you've just touched the surface with us on this issue. But I think you've done a great job of uh, telling us what we need to know in order to know how much we don't know, <laughs> which is always helpful uh, in my estimation. Everybody now knows enough to be dangerous. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's always our goal in these webinars. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, very, you're very welcome, Melissa. Thank you very much. Thank you, yeah. everybody, for having me. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for attending. Uh, you can catch the audio content on our podcast. I will remind you of that. And look for the uh, notifications of our future pop-up webinars, Thursdays at noon, 30 minutes. And as always... Thank you for your support of the fund. <laughs>